everybody, it's Joe Power Farms, the ladies working dog group. Are you feeling stuck with your gun dog training? Trust me, you're not alone and that's exactly why you need to be here. Every week, we're bringing you the best tips and hacks to make training your gun dog easy peasy. We'll keep it straightforward, no fuss, just actionable guidance that you can put straight to use. So let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Found It, Fetched It. This week, we are going to be discussing why you will never be sexier than a squirrel. So, joining me for this week's podcast is our amazing LWDG group expert, Jen Martin, and LWDG group expert, Samantha Thorne-Croft-Taylor. How are we, ladies? I'm very good, thanks, Joe. How are you? I'm enjoying the cooler weather, so I can put on my coat. And Jen? Yeah, really good, thank you, Joe. A little bit bored of being wet, but other than that, all good. Third topic about you will never be sexy on a squirrel. We are going to start with a caveat to this in the fact that we are not saying give up, let your dogs chase anything they ever see. We're going to be discussing what happens to a dog when they go into like a new environment or a different environment and why most owners tend to have trouble in, in outdoor spaces. So let's start by talking about the dog senses. When they leave our sort of garden, what happens to them? What is it that sort of blows their mind? Well, I mean, if you think about it, your dogs your dogs read the world through their nose. So, you know, they don't, whereas we use our eyes to see things and we hear things, and dogs do to a certain extent. It's their nose that tells them the constant changing story of what's going on in the environment around them. Um, so they will know the consistent smells that you have within your house and then within your garden, um, you know, and even if you've got foxes or cats or birds coming through your garden, it's still a fairly consistent story of smells that they're reading. When you go out into the big wide world, into that bigger environment, there are then multiple different scents, smells, um, and everything that is literally being thrown up their nose and is changing minute on minute and you know even more so hour on week and you know all the rest of that so it's just there's it's always new even if you go to the same place every day there will always be a new story that's being sent to them through their nose yeah exactly that and I think we forget quite often how sensitive a dog's sense of smell is when you look at that they can detect one drop of blood in like an olympic size swimming pool you just think of all the different smells that they're going to smell when you take them to a woodland or somewhere else that's had loads of wildlife and animals running around. It's, it's just a bit of overwhelm as well if it's not something your dogs are used to. But whilst they're in this sort of sensory wonderland, it's not just their nose, is it? They are years of telling them loads of what's going on in that environment too. Absolutely. They're hearing the things, they're seeing things. So whilst the nose is the majority of the story, they do then pick up using their other senses as well. So, you know, it might be that they hear a rustle behind them, which is a, a squirrel in the undergrowth, but then they see a bird fly across in front of the path the other day, so, the other way. So they're almost torn in two different directions without thinking about it. And that's before you take into account the fact that there is their human with them too. And I think what can be frustrating for people as well is that dogs have a really good memory. So if they go somewhere that last time they saw a rabbit run across where you were, they're going to be on the high alert for that possibly to happen again. So we need to bear that in mind when we're taking them to places that exciting stuff has happened before too. So 
do you think is a case like, for example, with us, if we buy a new perfume, we could smell it um, and we could smell it all the time and think, oh, that smells lovely, we use it. But after a little while, you sort of don't smell your own perfume and people say to you, oh, you smell beautiful. And you're like, oh, I, I'm not really aware of that. Is it a case for dogs that there's so many other smells? They're like, not that they can't smell a human, but the, what's going on with a human is made irrelevant by their minds because there's so much other stuff to be thinking about. Yeah, I mean, they, they are going to get desensitised to smells and things and they get used to smells. Like you say, the house smells one way, the garden will smell one way, and it's just not as exciting. And I think that is sort of one of the biggest things that owners struggle with is that we almost become devalued to the dog because they have free access to us at home and you know some dogs are very good at getting us to do things whenever they want them done so that we don't we just don't have that value to them at home because we're free access and they can get us whenever they like so when we go outside you know we're not a high valuable thing especially when we then confound them with all these other sights and smells and new fluffy things that they can see running and yeah we've just got zero value I think you've summed that up incredibly well, actually, there, Gem. I don't think there's a, a huge amount more that I could add to that. You know, it's, I see it a lot. I'm sure you do as well. People come for a first session with their dog and the dog is acting like it just doesn't give a hoot about its owner being there. And a lot of that comes back to the fact that, like you've said, they've got free access to their owner at home. They can, they've got them at their beck and call. It's pretty much like they're ringing a doorbell for their own owner. Um, so when you go out, they're going, do you know what? This isn't always here. This I don't have access to this 24-7. Whereas you, you're there all the time. So actually, I'm going to go with this bit that I only see two or three times a day when I'm exercised. And I suppose as well, it's not just like uh, the sounds and smells in the case of like other animals. It's everything, isn't it? Like wind and, you know, weather. It's, it's all vying for their attention so much that like, well, it's almost a little bit like going into a, a toy store when you're a kid. It's all that stuff. You you really just don't care what your uh, owner or parent is saying. It's a bit like me in a cake shop, to be honest. <laughs> if I start behind me, but if there's a pile of chocolate cake in front of me, well, I'm sorry, it's the chocolate cake all the way. So to move this forward, because, you know, our, our conversation is about the fact that we can't try to be more exciting 24-7 than all this stuff. It is impossible for us to do it. As much as it would be great to think that the dog just focuses on us, doesn't look at anything else, ignores everything else because we are so amazing. That's crap, isn't it? It's just not going to work like that. So what can we do to keep our dogs enjoying the environment but focusing on us? So I think the first thing I say to clients when they're struggling with this is have you got engagement from your dog in your garden have you got engagement from your dog when you're walking down the road on a short lead have you got engagement when you go on a field on a short lead all those little things if you haven't got that dog's even like 80 percent engagement when that dog is close to you you are never going to have <laughs> any engagement as your dog gets further and further away engagement with your dog will erode the further your dog gets away from you so you really need to work on building masses and masses of engagement when your dog is close and then little by little letting them go a bit further and practicing that engagement a bit further and a bit further and then once you've got that engagement at a distance in a boring place you can then start adding a bit more distraction a bit more smells a bit more you know things going on but again you need to prove that with all right can you be engaged with me in this wood 
when you're a meter away okay you can so let's add a few more meters can you still be engaged with me can we do some fun stuff together and use your nose um but i think people often skip all those steps and think actually i just need to get out and i need to give my dog a run and i'm going to go to the woods because woods are really fun um and instantly as soon as that dog's there even on a short lead that is lost to the environment that person might as well not be there it's just an anchor on the end of that lead so it's, it's really important that we start building up that engagement first before we then expect too much from our dogs and end up frustrated i think it's easy to forget as well that dogs don't generalize like humans do so just because we've taught them that they need to look at us before we give them their food or something in the kitchen doesn't mean that they're going to realize straight away they've got to look at us to get a reward out in the garden or out in that big field so like Jem said you know proofing and generalization is really really important another one that i often ask clients is can you get your dog to sit next to you for more than a split second and it's not that we're wanting the dog to sit there and, and watch a whole flock of sheep run past it or the deer you know leap over the hedge straight away but what we're asking is if the dog can't sit for more than half a second right next to them then again they're not going to be able to get anything like a sit stay with it 20 yards away so it's another way of sort of building up that focus on you generally little by little and just making sure that it is proofed across the board the steadiness and self-control that we teach in the hot with handler they are like foundation stones aren't they because like you just said if you can't get them to sit and be calm with you they are going to react to the environment like i can remember being out with the dogs once we were in gloucester and my spaniels were on my side and this thing flew past me that i didn't even know what it was um it turned out to be one of these like munchak and i was like oh my god now have the dog because it doesn't generalize have the dog thought well i've never seen one of them i'm after it we could have been in a in a bit of like poops creek for want a better word so it is about teaching them to stay to stay with you isn't it even all the stuff's going on stay with you be with you yeah and it goes back to those foundations that we we're teaching we need to teach our dogs a level of self-control for their whole lives in everything that they face because as we said, you're never going to be sexier than a squirrel. That is always going to be a massive thing for your dog. And it's inbred and it's prey driven. And that's going to be what they want to do. You're never going to be cooler than that. But what we can do is teach our dog self-control and go, I know you really want that, but I need you to just stay within our boundaries for the minute. And I will reward you in other ways. And we will do lots of other fun stuff together. But you need to control yourself in order to get that. So it's almost like it's building building a house i suppose you've got to build those those foundations of your dog's self-control just with little things around the house and then slowly progressing that as sam said with your sit stays if your dog can't sit stay next to you it's never going to sit stay 20 yards after you've stopped it on something so it's it's building that self-control and boundaries i think boundaries are really important because they do you know what happens inside can then transpire to what happens outside absolutely it's about the boundaries and the self-control and those foundations and just building it layer upon layer upon layer you know and teaching the dog that yes the squirrel is exciting but actually we can provide you with all the fun and the mental stimulation and the the breed specific outlet for want of a better description that you need to keep yourself satiated and we have a better relationship if we do it together 
than if you do it by yourself. Um, you know, so it's building that relationship, building that bond, building that the mutual trust and the confidence on, with each other that comes from the rules, the boundaries, and those like the initial foundations that we've taught and then have progressed upon. Some of it is our inexperience, though, because like sometimes when you're a first-time handler, you think that the dog has to come off the lead and run miles away from you and like, oh, look at him, he's having wonderful fun. He's like running, running, running. And we forget, or we don't know, because we don't know what we don't know, that the fun needs to be at your feet. The dog can enjoy himself just as much around you as they can 200 metres away in a different place. Exactly that. It's much, much easier to slowly increase the distance that you allow your dog to go away from you than it is to start at 100 yards out and try and draw it back in again. Because at that distance, you just don't have the control initially. You have to teach it and progress it. Um, And when we say about teaching the dog, you know, that you are the most important thing, we don't mean that you need to jump around waving a flag and, you know, be the biggest distraction in the area. It's not like you've got to go down to the beach with all the dogs and people and make a great big spectacle of yourself to try and be the biggest and the best distraction there. It's about finding what your dog finds rewarding and then working with it as a team. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people, a lot of novice people, certainly, when they look to their dog's natural abilities, they oftentimes will believe that the dog needs to do it by themselves. So it might be that they've sort of taken their young spaniel out and they know that spaniels like to hunt. So they've let it off the lead. They've given it this really nice scented area, but they've not actually worked through it with the dog. So the dog is out there going, I'm having great fun. I'm self-rewarding continually. I don't need my human because actually I've got everything I need right here. So instead of going out and using those natural abilities with you as just a bystander it's really important to use those natural but natural abilities with you as an integral part of it yeah and i think you've only got to look at some of the actually i'm going to single out cocker pages on facebook people know that the dogs are bred to do what they do and they know that they're bred for hunting and flushing birds but they don't understand that that happens like sam says as a team so quite often you see these lovely videos of spaniels on there running absolute riot in a woods going oh look they're really good at this they've flushed a bird and they've done this but they're almost two fields away doing it um and it's those people that will then struggle to try and rein them back in and get a reliable recall because what's in it for the dog the dog can do all of that stuff on its own and have a whale of a time um And it's sort of a key part of the puzzle that gets missed because unless you're working with your dog, then you might as well not be there. If you think about it, like, I'm sure we can all remember when we were kids, teasing your mum or aggravating it. If you were really close to her, you knew she could, like, correct it. So you'd, like, be the other side of the room, like, poking your tongue out or whatever. You'd put the distance in on purpose, wouldn't you? Because you know, if I'm far enough away, I can pretty much get away with what I want because my mum's not catching me. Like, my mum was pretty fast, so yeah, she could gather sometimes. But that it was that, that sort of spacing out. And I think our dogs are a little bit the same. It doesn't take them long to realise if I need just enough distance that they can't get me, I can pretty much do what I want. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, most dogs, if they're more than what five, six metres away from you, if they want to go, 
you don't stand a hope in hell's chance of catching them or, or trying to stop them, especially, I mean, even with your little goose, Joe, you wouldn't catch him if he decided to go. I bet he's rapid when he wants to go and he's got tiny little legs. Um, so yeah, they're not stupid. And that's why we try and sort of, when we talk to clients about engagement and stuff, about building this bubble around you, trying to keep these dogs in this invisible boundary, because once they are past that sort of five, 10 meter mark, you know, their, their listening skills are going to get worse, especially if they're novice dogs in training and, you know, not so experienced with their commands and stuff. You need to keep them close where you stand the best chance of going, oh, no, let's not do that. Yeah, good dog. And you can interrupt them when they're going to get it wrong so you can help them get it right. I think the stop whistle is a really good example of where dogs know the limitations and the distances that they are from the owner. So you can be teaching a stop whistle close, you progress the distance, you increase the distractions. And quite often when a dog gets to, let's say, 40 or 50 yards away, all of a sudden the stop whistle doesn't work anymore. And it's because the dog has figured out when they are at that distance, you can't do a lot to correct it, especially if the dummy, you know, there's a, there's a nice retrieve up there for them. And maybe they're 40 yards from you and only 20 yards from the dummy. So they're, they're faster than us. They're going to get to that dummy before we are. And that's when the cracks in the foundations then seem because the, the stop whistle seems to be going okay. But then the dog reaches that distance and all of a sudden it falls apart and you realise that potentially you either push the distance too quickly or you didn't proof it enough at smaller distances or you didn't practice it, repeat it. You weren't consistent enough at those smaller distances. So I think, you know, like Jem said about that bubble, dogs, not every dog is the same. Dogs will have a different limit, but it always comes down to how solid those foundations are as to how large your bubble, your safety net is going to be. Inside our membership, we teach epic ways to work on stop and brilliant ways to work on like engagement when you're out and about, and that's absolutely fabulous. And we also help people like getting from being able to come on, on lead to off lead, because this is something else that people struggle with, isn't it? Especially if the dog has been on a lead for a long time without coming off, Getting that transition from on lead to off lead is going to be difficult, isn't it? It can be. I think, you know, it's going from on lead to off lead is one of those things that you need to do when the puppy is young. You've got to rely on the fact that you are their comfort blanket and they want to be with you whilst they're experiencing all these other outside external influences that they could perceive as a little bit scary. We don't want them to think of the outside world as scary, but we want to get really ingrained in teaching the recall ideally as a breeder from three weeks old you know you'd want your breeder to be start teaching the recall every time they feed but then you need to jump on that when you take your puppy home at eight weeks old start teaching a recall get it off lead as soon as you can get it listening to you a lot of times people are sort of scared to let it off lead when it's a little baby puppy and it doesn't know anything else so they go, okay, well, I'm going to teach it to walk on a lead. I'm going to teach it to sit. Um, I might teach it to um, retrieve, but they, they forget the recall. And so when they do let it off the lead, it's like an elastic band has been cut. And the dog, all of a sudden then, that is older, bolder, and a lot more confident, just goes, bing, I've got freedom. And now I can go and explore everything that has been out of bounds to me because I've been stuck on a lead for so long. I think Sam's hit the nail on the head there. There's, especially when you've had the chance to have your puppy 
from a very young age, like eight weeks. That's a, a massive key window to teaching your your recall because they you you are their world at that point. It's a really small window, but at that point you need to bank it because the big wide world opens up and all these smells happen and blah 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 blah. Obviously, not everyone has the opportunity to have their dogs from puppies, and that's probably the harder bit because you need to start building that bubble when they're not so interested in you. But if you have got the opportunity to start it with your puppy, exactly like Sam says get that recall going and reward, reward, reward for all those little baby ones they're doing so that you're banking it. I was really interested yesterday when we asked in our free community, like, um, will people uh, be go, going out on the field with their dogs or is your love for the sport the training element? Because a lot of people think that, you know, just training the dog and then not going out on the field makes them not inferior but that they don't have a place in society but it's absolutely wrong isn't it because i think this incredible value in or for working dogs who aren't going to go out on the field just to do the gun dog training so even if you're thinking well i'm never going to take this dog out on mistakes never going to pick up a bird never going to clark a deer you could still learn so much from instilling the foundations yeah, exactly. And I think the majority of our clients aren't ever going to go and work their dogs on a shoot or do anything using their skills, but they need to understand what the dogs were bred to do um, and have a, a really good appreciation of that so that they can then build these better relationships with their dogs using their innate skills and sort of, you know, having an idea of what is happening in that little dog's head when they are taking it out to all these places. What does that dog want to do? Um, and working with them to fulfill those needs a little bit more. I think it's exactly that sort of understanding that every dog needs a job of some description. And if you can give it a job that is better geared towards its natural genetic instincts, then that's going to make it a lot easier for you. But it doesn't mean that you have to go the whole hog. Um, and actually, I think I probably said this on maybe the last podcast, Joe, gun dog training is a great way of teaching any dog of working gun dog breeding to behave. It's a high level obedience. The only bit that you don't need to worry about is introducing fur, feather or gunshot, um, you know, but if you can use those natural instincts to keep your dog fulfilled, then you are going to have a better relationship. I was actually asked yesterday by a client or she said to me she felt guilty that she wasn't working towards taking her working gun dog on a shoot. Um, and I, I, you could almost see the weight lifted on her shoulder when I said that just doing the training and just teaching the dog to harness those natural instincts and to work with her was fulfilling her dog. It was more than enough. She didn't have to go and get into the shooting industry just for the dog she was doing plenty by following through the training and that was keeping her dog happy and content think about it for many people i know some people go out and they work three days a week on a shoot or more they've got big teams they're out all the time but for the majority of people say they go out on a saturday maybe on a tuesday think i day of work and they go out and they start in like october and they finish by february what's that like maybe 16 weeks so they will go 16 days that so they'll go out on a stay for the other 350, I can't do the math, somebody do it for me. But for the other X amount of days, that dog just trains. So your dog is actually possibly, in the worst case, missing out 
on 16 days. Like the dog really doesn't care, does it? It's the stuff around it. And if you think about it, I don't think there's a pet dog of any breed that shouldn't know to sit and stay, that shouldn't know to recall, that shouldn't know to heal, that shouldn't show that self-control and shouldn't be steady. I think those things, I think people can go, well, are they gun dog specific? Well, no, they're just generally well-behaved dog specific. Exactly. Like I said, you know, gun dog training is basically just higher level obedience, um, you know, but I think every dog, like you've just shed, said, should know your recall, it should be able to walk on a lead, it should know to sit and stay at a pavement edge so it doesn't get run over, um, and it should know leave. Um, you know, they are pretty much the, um, settled, self-controlled, you know, they are the basis for, in my opinion, any and all dogs. These are all things as well, though, like when people, we talk about going out in the environment and is my dog ready? Say the dog's not ready to be out in that environment because it just doesn't have that connection with you. All these foundations can easily be trained at home, can't they? They can be done over and over and over at home. So teaching a recall at home every time you put food down, teaching your dog to sit when you're sitting watching TV and stay with you, teaching heel work when you walk down the corridor or when you're taking them out to go to the toilet. All these like little things can be done multiple times a day, probably more times a day by doing them in the house than you can by saying, like, going out for like a half hour training session. Yeah, exactly. And, and home and garden should be your level one. So all of your stuff should be like spot on whilst you're at home before you think actually I'm going to get this in a field or whatever if you're not getting it 100% at home it's unlikely that's going to happen outside so like you say while you're at home with your dogs especially if you've got the value of working from home so you've got tea breaks and stuff while you're making a cup of coffee practice a bit of six days or practice some leaves or all those little bits it can be sort of weaved into their day-to-day -day life it doesn't have to be right I'm setting aside half an hour training session for you to do x y and z um, it can be little and often throughout their day. And then when you start to proof it, you can go to a, a slightly more distracting area and try exactly what you've been practicing, but on a sort of smaller scale. So your stays might be a, a lesser distance and um, talking about the 3Ds, which we often talk about and putting those into practice. If somebody is sitting listening to this, looking at a two-year-old who's a jet, well, I don't want to use a swear word, but he's a bit of a poop head when you go out in, you go out anywhere with them. Is it a case of, right, I've just got to get this right in the house. And while I've got him here and I'm not being, oh, he's not being distracted by anything, I've got to get this right for a period of time before I start trying to correct it out there. Definitely. Back to basics in those easier environments. Make sure that you've got that engagement, that you get those responses inside your house, on the patio, in the garden, and then progress maybe to, you know, your front driveway. So you're just eking out into the big wide world. And don't get me wrong, we're not saying that you can't take your dog for a walk for the next couple of months whilst you're practicing these things. You do have to bear in mind that you might be slightly fighting against yourself. So if you're trying to teach the dog to walk nicely on a lead in your house, and then you're going to a more distracting environment that is over-simulating for the dog, you're going to be fighting against what you've just taught it. 
So you've got to find the balance, but don't feel that we're saying lock yourself in your house and don't go out for two months. But overall, yes, back to basics, repetition, consistency, relay those foundations, get everything solid there and then start proofing and practicing and increasing the distractions, the duration and the distances slowly. I think sometimes as well, like distraction stuff in the house, not I find it easier, but, and bear with me on this one, is the fact that like, for example, if I teach uh, or, or if I'm training with Ella and I say sit, and then Matt calls her, because there's not much going on in the house, she'll sometimes break the door to him and I'm like, uh-uh, come back here. And I think sometimes it's easier to do distraction stuff like that when you're not fighting a huge environment of all distractions. Do you get what I'm saying? So like sometimes in the house, you can make it, you can manipulate this so that they can focus on the distraction more, not break more. Where am I going with this? I find it easier in the house because you can control the distraction. Exactly that. And that was what I was going to say. You've got a much greater control of the environment that the dog's in. So at home we can add more distractions if our dogs are doing really well so like you say you can ask matt to be a wally in the corner or equally have the kids doing something or you can i don't know throw something around you know that there's not going to be those environmental factors that are out of your control so you're not going to have a muntjac that's just going to leg it through your living room or your garden and you're not going to have a big flush of birds fly over you've got control of the situation so you can start to proof those little bits that where you're adding distractions, whereas outside, obviously, anything can happen. And I think it's that anything that happens that then massively flusters an owner, doesn't it? So, for example, let's say Ella breaks, she goes to Matt. I can correct it. We can practice it again. We can practice it again until we get it right. Whereas if she's in the environment and she's acting like a monkey, it's very easy for me to feel overwhelmed and thinking I can't even control the distractions to focus on correcting it that's why things like long leads long lines sorry uh are quite an effective tool because we have got a bit of control in some instances to stop our dog from going further and doing that thing that we don't want them to do if it does go wrong with something that's completely out of our control say another dog's bowled over and ruined your sit stay there's absolutely no point in correcting your dog because you know it, it's something that you knew would make your dog break it's something that you didn't have control of. So at that point, just pop your dog on a lead, go somewhere else, reset them again, make it maybe a bit easier if they've got a bit overexcited, let them have a success. And you know what? Tomorrow's another day. Some things we can't control and it will go wrong, but that's how learning happens. Things have to go wrong for us to then get it right. So don't panic. Absolutely don't panic. Um, you know, Jam has just said you can use long lines, you can chalk it up to a oh well it wasn't to be today but you know this afternoon or tomorrow we can try again i think you also what i find a lot of new owners or novice owners can struggle with at times is that when they're out they are so focused on the dog and doing the right thing with the dog and getting the dog to do the right thing that to them the outside world becomes a bit of a blur and I think in order to be a truly effective trainer, it's helpful to be able to sort of keep keep the environment almost in your peripheral vision. So you are 
maybe 70% focused on the dog and what you're doing and what the dog's doing. And then 30%, I just heard a gate go over my left shoulder, right shoulder, you know, so potentially someone's going to come in in a minute, or I've heard a rustle in the hedge down there. So maybe that munchak is going to appear and just being ready to expect the unexpected, preparing yourself for any and all eventualities will help also prepare your dog because it means that you know if you have heard that gate latch go and your dog was in a sit stay then when you're in the early stages of that sit stay you could potentially walk over to your dog or be close you can close down that distance so that you are in theory more in control if that gate latch going transpires and turns into the dog running across and bowling into your space as Gem just um, described then you're in a better place to be able to correct anything that happens. It's like I say, it's sort of learning to read your surroundings just as much as focusing on the dog in front of you. Thank you ladies for another fabulous podcast episode. Uh, If you're listening, I hope you are now happy that you do not ever need to be sexier than a squirrel. And instead you need to just put in some rules and boundaries. If you need help doing this, please pop over to our website, www.ladiesworkingdoggroup.com. Have a look at our Hot Mess Handler. It's there for men and women. Standalone course is absolutely fabulous. covers all the foundation. Or you can look at joining our membership. But please be aware, ladies, that the doors will be closing shortly. Um, we won't be taking any members on for a little while um, while we focus on helping the ladies we have. So thank you, experts, for being wonderful as always. Um, and we shall see you all next week. That's it for today's episode. A massive thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to head over to the LWDG and sign up for our membership. Get access to expert-led training, a wonderfully supportive community, and the resources you need to become a confident and skilled gun dog trainer. Let's take this journey together, because no woman should have to train her gun dog alone. We'll see you all next week.